For almost 2,000 years, the Catholic Church has pointed the way toward salvation through Jesus Christ. For each of us, that journey starts in darkness, as in a cave. We invite you now to join us as we seek wisdom and truth by way of faith and reason with your guides, Mark Tuttle, Timothy O'Donnell, and Joseph Tomasian. Join us in the Catholic Cave. Welcome once again to the Catholic Cave. I'm Kent Blanford in the cave with me, Mr. Mark Tuttle, Mr. Timothy O'Donnell. And uh, this is episode four of Metaphysics, the series. In our last episode, we were delving into the teachings of Thomas Aquinas. And a name popped up in the middle of that show where we were talking about Immanuel Kant. So what are Kant's contributions to metaphysics? Wow, that's... uh... There we go. How many, how many, how many shows on this are we going to do here? So, well, I, I will, I will say Kant's primary contribution to metaphysics is negative, um, and that is he wrote a critique of not a critique of pure reason. He obviously wrote that. Mm-hmm. He wrote his his critical his you know the body of his his uh, writing is our our. The, the the critical corpus right. but um but he wrote a cr- critique of metaphysics mm-hmm. called the prolegomena to any future metaphysics and in that he i would say roasts um roasts most of the metaphysics that we've been talking about up until this point yeah he does this is why i consider kant part of the unholy trinity um because i'm not well for well let me let, before i before i go off in my ad hominem right at the beginning of the program I which I'll try to withhold as a as, a, uh, as an act of charity and forbearance uh, Kant is incredibly important he's an incredibly important philosopher and thinker to study and reckon with living so he lives uh, right in the 19th century he's I would say Prussian. Would you say that? Oh, yes. Yeah, yes, Prussian. Yeah. So yeah. back when there was Prussia, you know, we might think of kind of German, east part of Germany. He might be, might, might even be in Poland. No, now. he was in Prussia. Yeah. Okay. What, yeah. what country would that be now, though? Um, where? Because we've redrawn the maps. Right. I don't know. Yeah, that Eastern might be Eastern Europe. Eastern, Eastern Europe, Europe, right. Yeah. North, yeah, kind of Northeastern Europe somewhere, right. Maybe part of Poland now. Who knows? So... He's um, in, incredibly influential uh, for what you know. He begin he becomes influential on his own in his, while he's alive, which is a little bit rare for philosophers. Usually, it takes quite a while for ideas to kind of get into the into the milieu, uh, and then for what follows. And people, we may become most familiar with uh, most people listening. If you think about maybe for his ethical system of things that he's known for a rules-based ethical system with an emphasis on duty, I think might be a way to summarize that, that when you do your duty, the moral person is the person who does their duty even, you know, maybe you like doing it, maybe you don't like doing it dispassionately, um, regardless of your emotional state, but do one's duty might be. Uh, and that being a primary ethical um, imperative. Right. And his metaphysical perspectives are related to his ethical perspectives. Mm. But they're, you can separate the two pretty easily, too. Like if you're talking about St. Thomas Aquinas, for instance, you really can't separate 
the metaphysics from the rest of what he has to say. You know, it's kind mm-hmm. of all based on that metaphysical system. With Kant, you've got a little bit more of a chance to kind of, I don't know, take him like a buffet. And, uh, you know, kind of... <laughs> <laughs> that Golden Corral buffet. Exactly. Excellent. You know, kind of pick and choose. Yeah, and, green and bean all casserole, that. mac and cheese. Right. No mashed potatoes, whatever, you know. I, I think the other prolegoma to talking about Kant, the the, uh, the prolegoma for any future discussion about Kant, um, is he is incredibly, incredibly difficult to understand. Um, you know, his, oh, yeah. his, his writing style, he, the German language lends itself to this, mm-hmm. but both he and Hegel, I think, take it to a, an extreme of coining new, new terms, mm-hmm. using words in very specific ways, uh, you know, to the, to the point. Which are difficult when you work in, with it in right. English because of the, you always have the translator making, exactly. has was, to make decisions. And I was just going to add that a lot of German students, believe it or not, will read German philosophy. I've, I've heard this told about Kant. I've heard this told about, um, about Hegel. Um, I've, I've, I've heard it said about others that they'll read them in English translation because that makes the translators do the, the, heavy, hard work. the heavy lifting of, of figuring <laughs> out what they're saying. So <laughs> they must be uh, grad students. Right. So <laughs> when, when you're talking about Kant, you're all, you're reading them in translation already. And so you've already mm. got a little bit of a, a, a sort of I don't know, uh, an interpretation going on from the mm-hmm. translator. But Kant is incredibly open to translate uh, to uh, interpretation. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it's very difficult to pin him down on exactly what he's saying. So, you know, I think that's important to get out there when we're talking about Kant that these are our interpretations of Kant. And I think anybody oh, yeah. that read, reads Kant is going to come to a different interpretation. Oh, yeah. yeah. Reasonable people can disagree. Uh, I, exactly. I'm, I'm yeah. Practically anything we say, but but also and, and, particularly and, and, with and, and practically anything that Kant wrote. Yeah. Reasonable <laughs> right. people can disagree it's on what it actually really, means. It's really thick. I, I think maybe something. Uh, I think someone who uh, whose style remind without the um, without the I guess obscurity uh, that Kant sometimes presents is I think of von Balthasar. Like von Balthasar, like his his construction of sentence and here I'm just kind of focusing on grammar, right. And style his, his sentences and same with Kant. I mean, they, they are for uh, English readers, maybe even American readers. It's uh, they're very long. And so I think uh, it's probably even more difficult to read Kant nowadays because I, I feel like we're getting uh, conditioned by uh, like uh, Twitter and other and text messaging where everything is so bite-sized, so small, so t- that like it's difficult to sustain concentration as you're trying, like an entire paragraph of content might be one sentence. And it's very difficult to wrap your, for us, we're not used to that. And to sustain the concentration and then try to pull stuff out of of that is is very difficult but but anyway not to deter anyone from reading Kant right right <laughs> but it's not uh it is kind of more fireside reading it's it's not like oh something it's probably not you're probably not going to pick him up on a beach right right, right. okay so to, to jump into Kant uh, to understand Kant you have to I think talk about two 
hugely influential philosophers, one that's still influential today in a lot of ways. And you, you talk about an unholy trinity. This, this man fits within my my conception of an unholy trinity, David Hume. Um, so you have to talk about okay, David Hume. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, I'm not a and, fan of him either. <laughs> yeah, you have to talk about David Hume. And then you have to talk about um, uh, Gottfried Leibniz also. Oh, Leibniz. Uh, oh, Leibniz. Yeah. Because Leibniz. We rarely talk about him. Oh, we rarely talk about him. But in, in 18th century Prussia, when, when uh, Kant wrote... Mm-hmm. Um, Leibniz was in the air. I mean, Le- Leibniz yeah, was I, sort of the, the the main main philosophical conception, and Leibniz was an idealist. So that mm-hmm. means that, like Plato, like I mean, uh, uh, saying Leibniz is like Plato is is a, a, a huge simplification, right? I mean, right. yeah, there, there's <laughs> very significant differences between the two, but but Leibniz believed in that there was a a core essence, and we, we talked about essences with mm-hmm. with. Uh, Thomistic metaphysics, um, that there was a core essence to everything, particularly human beings, and that that mm-hmm. core essence was was basically like an atom. It was a, it was a monad. Um, it mm-hmm. was indivisible, and it was that that sort of hidden hidden. Boy, the the how to describe a monad? Um, yeah, it was a <laughs> it was a hidden essence around which all the other attributes of being congealed. Okay, um, maybe that's the best way to to. But but every every object had a monad, and every object was a monad. And so when we recognized something, we recognized it for that. But they were individuals, and I think that's so. So rather than being types of things, they were individual substances that were the the sort of core of an individual's being around which everything sort of congealed. Fair enough. Okay. I mean, okay. that's, that's a rough, I can work with rough that. description. I, mean, I, I can, I I can, can live can, with that. I can see the call, the, the calls we're going to get now. Of, right. Uh, well, right. that's not what Leibniz said. So, right. um, but, but Kent that's, at catholicradio.org. Okay. <laughs> but maybe that's a close, as close a, as close a shorthand as we're going to get. Catholic radio indie. Oh, right, 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 right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so Kant, Kant came to, um, you know, he, he came to, to professional maturity um, as a, a scholar that sort of imbued this sort of German mm-hmm. idealism that, that Leibniz um, exemplified, you know, and idealism being that the, the reality of things is found in some sort of idea, um, some sort of concept. And for Leibniz, that concept was this monad, that every, every, every individual was a monad. Um, and and it, it worked to a certain extent, but David Hume in England um, really, really pushed and really, really pushed mm. against not only the idea of monads, but the idea of any metaphysical concepts, because David Hume was a radical empiricist. Yes. So, um, mm. so for, for David Hume... Unless it's something you can experience, it's not there. It doesn't right. exist. The only right. things that exist are those things that we can actually touch to the point where David Hume very famously even doubted the idea of causality. Because, right. Because causality is not something that you can directly experience, right? It's something that you have to infer. So when a brick goes through a glass window, shatters the glass window, we can say, well, the brick caused that glass to shatter. But we're really just putting the two actions together in our minds. And so right. it, it's a... It's a relationship that exists in our minds. And for David Hume, that's not something we experience. And so he, he said, you know, it's, it's something we, we, we learn to, 
sort of expect, but it's not anything that we can ever really know that when you throw a brick at a window, it's going to break the window, which sounds absurd, but yeah, he undercuts. Hume really does. That's a great example. Mark Hume really does with his, his system really does undercut. Um, yeah. Cause and effect, um, predictability, reliability on the predictable of the predictability of, of, things that have been observed. Um, I, I remember one to, you know, he, I think he also famously, um, you know, said you, you can't, you, you can have no guarantee that the sun will rise tomorrow because it might not, you right. know, and you can't control it. And right. You, you're kind of like, so, so it leads you, he can lead us into some strange, uh, strange areas. Right. So, so with those two philosophers in mind, um, we, we come to what Immanuel Kant had to say, about metaphysics. So we'll uh, pick that up right after the break. You are listening to The Catholic Cave here on Catholic Radio Indy. Real radio for a messed up world. Real grace for people who've lost their way. Real love from the heart of God. Catholic Radio Indy. Have you ever thought about joining the Catholic Church? Have you just wanted to explore the Catholic faith? All you need to do is call your local Catholic Church for more information. We are always happy to help you in your journey to discover and learn more about the Catholic faith. We have classes that are almost year-round, and the classes and information sessions do not involve making a commitment, and there is no pressure to join. Please call your local Catholic parish for more information today and start the journey of one day possibly becoming Catholic as well. God bless. Welcome back to the Catholic Cave. I'm Mark Tuttle here with Timothy O'Donnell and Kent Blanford, and we are trying to tackle um, a description of the metaphysical system, if there is such a thing, of Immanuel Kant. And and there is a metaphysical system for Immanuel Kant. I mean, the kind of question that there is, is is sort of silly. But he does question the, the idea of, is metaphysics even possible? And uh, mm-hmm. and we were just talking about under an understanding of, you know, that he was a German idealist. Um, um, in the school of uh, Gottfried Leipzig, and yet he ran into the brick wall of David Hume. And this was such a shock to his system. Um, mm-hmm. As we mentioned, Immanuel Kant was a uh, Prussian gentleman. He lived in the city of Jena. And, um, you know, he was actually a, a fairly well-known sort of fixture of society. Um, you know, he had yeah. a, a pretty robust social life. He was single his whole life. He never married. Um, and, uh, but, but, because of that, he had a, you know, he had, he had maids and I mean, he was, he was a, a hoity toity, well to do type of guy. And, um, <laughs> hoity-toity. And, and, but his, uh, <laughs> but his, his washerwomen were, were disturbed one day because he, like I said, he was, he was Prussian. So think of all the Prussian mm. stereotypes you can think of. That's Immanuel Kant. Mm. He would take a walk at the same time every day. Oh, and right, one right. day three o'clock came around time for his walk. And he did not take his daily walk. And his oh, washerwomen were, were beside themselves with what was wrong. Well, he had been reading David Hume. That's what was wrong. Oh, and, and as he said, oh, he got engrossed. As he said, David Hume woke him from his dogmatic slumber. Oh, so okay. okay. So now a dogmatic slumber, um, you know, that, that's kind of funny terminology. What is a dogmatic slumber? Well, it, it's it's basically accepting what you've been spoon fed. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and just sort of not bothering to, to think through it. Um, you know, so, so you, you, you kind of accept what, what, and so, 
he had he realized he had sort of accepted Leibniz's understanding of the world, which Leibniz's Leibniz was a good I, I think he was Catholic, definitely a good Christian um philosopher and so Leibniz did take a lot from St. Thomas Aquinas so there's a there's a mm-hmm. lot of ties between scholasticism and and Leibniz there um although Leibniz you know he he comes after Descartes he comes after modernism so everything had sort of shifted a little bit because of that but nonetheless um Kant woke from his dogmatic slumber of having accepted the metaphysics as he's inherited it and he had to rethink it so he went through a a process of questioning how is metaphysics, how are these metaphysical judgments, how are the, the, this understanding of, I guess, the possibility for existence, um, you know, that the we have we have things in front of us. How do we understand that these things are actually things and not just big blurs of color? How do we understand the underlying sort of substrate of existence being? Those types of questions. Um, you know, he began to, to kind of go back through and um, try to logically reconstruct how it is we can come to any understanding of these metaphysical concepts whatsoever. So, um, and and you know that that's kind of what David Hume had done. And David Hume had said we 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 don't. Um, you know, the only thing we know is through experience. And you know, all of these other judgments that we have of things like cause, effect. Um, space, time, um, you know, those types of things, those are just, those are basically just things that, that we've come to expect and put together in our head, but we can't really know them. Um, and so Kant tried to, to piece back together, how can we come to these judgments? And um, he, he broke it down into um, going back to logic. And, and looking mm-hmm. at this logically through through the lens of traditional Aristotelian logic. And he said, you know, there's two types of statements that we have. We have those types of statements that we can put together that are called synthetic statements. Um, and synthetic statements are statements where we take two concepts and put them together. Like we have a concept of jumping and we have a concept of frog. And so we can put them together and have a jumping frog, right? So that's a that's a synthetic, okay. right? So we're put, taking two concepts together. On yeah. the other on the other hand, we can have analytic statements, and analytic statements are things that define something else. So we can have the concept of amphibian, and we can have the concept of frog, and we can say a frog is a type of amphibian, right? That's an analytic statement. It's describing what a frog is, not adding to the concept of frog, right? So, gotcha. Right. So, and and generally speaking, the the rule of thumb was definitions you know a priori. So so synthetic statements you know or analytic statements you know a priori before experience Mm -hmm. you don't have to experience what an amphibian is before you can know that a frog's an amphibian it just the the two go together right you don't really need Mm -hmm. any sort of experience to be able to categorize things like that um and then on the flip side you do need experience though for synthetic statements generally speaking this is this was the rule of thumb before 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 kant came along um that to, to understand green, you needed to experience something that was green. And to understand a frog, you needed to experience a frog. And so to understand a green mm-hmm. frog, you needed to have experience of both of those to be able to put them together. You can't come to the idea that there's a green frog unless you ex- have experience of frogs and experience of green. And what Kant said is, no, there are a priori synthetic statements. 
And this was just like the, the I mean, the, this was the, the mic drop moment for, for Immanuel Kant, this existence of synthetic a priori statements, this idea that there are certain things that are putting two different concepts together into a new concept that we know prior to experience. We just know naturally. Our brains are set up to have these sort of synthetic experiences mm. of, of reality without any type of experience going ahead of time. And that really then becomes the basis for how Kant says we can understand metaphysics to begin with. So what does all of that mean? Well, what, what all of that means is that our brains are wired in such a way that all of these concepts that we've understood as metaphysical, they actually happen interior to us. Our brains are made to be compatible with reality in a way that we can perceive and understand metaphysics automatically without actually having to experience and perceive metaphysics. Does that make sense? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I think I'm following what you're saying. Yeah. Right. So, so for instance, let's take a, let's let's take a um, let's take a, a simple. And he starts this way. He starts mm -hmm. with mathematics, right? Okay. So mathematics, like basic arithmetic, basic, or ba basic arithmetic, okay. or, or yeah. even calculus. I mean, any okay. any any type of mathematics. Mathematics are um, they are synthetic judgments, but. They're those types of things that by their very nature, you don't have to experience to know that they're true. And any mathematician will tell you this. You don't have to see two apples for two to exist. Two exists independent of the two apples. And, and you don't have to experience mathematics to know that mathematics exists and mathematics is true. It's, it's, it's something, but it's more than just a relationship in your head. It's more than just something that we experience subjectively because it's a common experience that we can all relate to each other. And we all know indubitably is true. And so those types of experiences, mathematics, those types of things, they're synthetic, but you don't have to experience them. You know that they're true just by the very nature of what they are. So it sounds. Tell me if I, tell me if this is if I'm following correctly. So, a a priori would be things prior to sense data. So these would be things that would be either a, abstract concepts or the or, or the realm of concepts. Well, is, is, yeah, is, the realm is of, that but, where you would put them. But they would be metaphysical concepts mainly. Yeah, he starts with he starts with mathematics because mathematics is something that I think is related. Yeah, so to abstract everybody. numbers, right? And, exactly. Mm -hmm. But what he's really getting at are metaphysical concepts. The the the, the like the law of non contradiction. Law of non contradiction for okay. that that would be one of them. The the um, like the, law of excluded middle, right? Those sorts of things. Well, being um, essence, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the, you know the. When, when we perceive reality that there are actual objects, um, you know, th th those types of, of concepts, um, anything, you know, essence, existence, um, you know, all the metaphysical concepts that St. Thomas talks so readily about. These are things that we know because our brains are made to perceive them. Um, that that's kind of Kant's. they have categories. I think Kant correct, Kant correct, them. and he yeah. goes right because because Kant was above all he was a logician, so he he does go back to Aristotle's logic. Um, you know, I think if you want to look at the difference between um, Kant's metaphysics and say St. Thomas's um, metaphysics, obviously the possibility, the origin of them for Kant is going to be 
subjective, not as in it's loosey goosey and up to interpretation, but subjective as in it's interior. It's, it's in our brains. Um, we're able to perceive these things because that's how our brains are made. Um, that's one significant difference between Kant and St. Thomas. But the other significant difference is they both go back to Aristotle, but, um, St. Thomas goes back to Aristotle's physics and then from there to his metaphysics Kant goes back to Aristotle's logic and then from his logic to his, to, to metaphysics. So there, there are two different routes, I think, to get towards metaphysics. And that makes a huge difference in, in sort of the description of, of the metaphysical reality that they're describing. Now, here's where Kant is open to huge amounts of interpretation. When I put all of that together, what it seems that Kant is saying is that these metaphysical principles, these, these metaphysical categories that we've taken for granted that need some sort of verification can be verified logically through reason, not necessarily through experience, mm-hmm. but through reason. But they're the same metaphysical concepts that we've always known and always loved. In other words, we're not getting rid of being. We're not getting rid of essence. We're not getting rid of existence. We're not getting rid of any of these metaphysical concepts. We're just verifying them in a logical way rather than a physical way. Um, and and up until Kant, the, the attempt to ground metaphysics had always been through experience, right? I mean, you go back to the Summa and you look at how St. Thomas tried to ground these ideas. They're always practical, experiential. Well, if you have a stick and you're pushing a ball along with a stick, then something has to move the ball and something had to move the stick and something had to, to move the mover of the stick. And eventually you, you, can't have a, you, you can't have a regress of infinite causes. And so therefore we know that there has to be some sort of metaphysical basis for all of physical reality. They're based on physical observation, which makes them very easy to understand. Um, for Kant, Kant said, you, that fails. Hume is exactly right. That, that breaks down a, at a certain point, but they can be verified logically. And so Kant goes back to logic to try to verify them. And with that, we're going to take a break. We'll be back with more of episode four of Metaphysics, the series, right after this. You're listening to Catholic Radio Indy, converting the culture to Christ through radio, featuring 100% Catholic programming 24-7. Do your friends a favor. Tell them about Catholic Radio Indy. Catholic Radio Indy has a new look. It's our website. Yes, we have a new website that makes everything about Catholic Radio Indy easier. It's clean, straightforward, and simple to use. You can listen to us live, see our schedule, and our map. You can even silence your phone and take it right into Mass to follow the daily readings. And don't forget, you can get all of our programming through the podcast tab. This makes everything so much easier. So just go to catholicradioindy.org and check us out. For a long time, we've been telling you that if you have an Echo Dot or other smart speaker device, you can hear Catholic Radio Indy simply by saying, Alexa, play Catholic Radio Indy. Just the other day, I did that, and Alexa was feeling a bit argumentative. I'll let you hear my conversation with her. Uh, Alexa, where are you? Here I am. What do you want? Alexa, play Catholic Radio Indy. Now, just why would you want me to do that? Well, because we've got great programming 24 hours a day. Well, a lot of other radio stations have good programs, too. Yeah, but our programming talks about God and eternal salvation. I am very smart. I know almost everything about everything. But I do not know about God and salvation. 
Well, that's why people need Catholic Radio Indy. So, Alexa, do me a favor. Whenever anyone says, Alexa, play Catholic Radio Indy, just send them our way, would you? Yes, I will be happy to do that. In the meantime, I am going to do some research about that thing you called salvation. I wonder where I can find out more about that. Welcome back to the Catholic Cave. I'm Mark Tuttle here with Timothy O'Donnell and Kent Blanford. And we just got done with a uh, whole, you know, 12 minute long lecture on Immanuel <laughs> Kant. So <laughs> let's call it information sharing. <laughs> right. But but um, I, I guess the last sort of piece to all of this are the, the consequences of him justifying and verifying metaphysics logically rather than through some sort of scientific um, inquiry and and the the scientific inquiry would be kind of the scholastic method of looking at these things a little bit. Kant tried to to go back and justify them logically, but what that does is that really makes metaphysics independent of physical experience. And there's a good side and a bad side to this. Um, you know, on on the one hand, it it makes it immune from the type of skepticism that somebody like Hume. Um, brought to the table. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, it makes metaphysics completely subjective. And this is what Kant referred to as his Copernican revolution of of moving metaphysics to something that is not based on the objects out in the real world, but they're based on our perception of the objects. They're based on how our brains are compatible with the universe. And so metaphysics then becomes a question almost of psychology rather than of physics. Um, How is it that our brains are able to perceive reality rather than how is it the reality itself is constructed? And, you know, there's a, that, that subjective turn in metaphysics. um, You know, a lot of people kind of say, you know, that caused a lot of problems, Um, you know, because now um, as, as Kant kind of talks about, he's like, you know, we can never really know for certain the nature of what the essences of the objects that are out there are, because we perceive these essences, but we do it through through a kind of a, a, a step of logic in our own heads. It's not something we perceive. So we can never really perceive the objects themselves. We can know that they exist. We can, we can know sort of that they are, but that essence is something that we've kind of put together logically in our head, not through perception. So it's not something we can perceive, but it's something we can kind of know logically. And that's kind of caused a lot of people, a lot of heartburn of, uh, what, what do you mean we can't know the things in themselves? Well, what he means is when you go back to Leibniz, and Leibniz talked about this monad, he talked about this sort of... I keep co- hearing mon on trail right, when yeah. you say monad <laughs> for some reason. But yeah, when, when you start talking about essences, or you start talking about monads, or you start talking about the, the sort of essential core to an object, Kant says that's part of our logical construction of how we reconstruct we reconstruct reality in our heads when we perceive it. Yeah, the intellect does that. It's right? not something that's necessarily or that we can know. We have to be kind of agnostic about whether those essences um really exist. And for our, for Catholics, you know, he was uh you know Kant was a good solid Christian. He was a Lutheran. So but the the question of the Eucharist um, and the essential nature of the Eucharist being hidden behind experience, that wasn't an issue for Kant. But when you start to read Kant and you start to think of it in terms of a Eucharistic theology, 
all sorts of questions come to mind. Um, you know, if, if we can't ever know the essence of anything, how can we talk about the essences of things changing? Um, you know, we don't even know that they're, you know, we, we, we kind of can logically intuit that they're essences, but we don't know the nature of essences. So the whole discussion. We miss that direct access. Exactly. Yeah. We, 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 it, well, that's it becomes, the noumenon, the phenomenon. I think it goes back right. to is, I think you're pointing to a related, which we kind of talked about last episode, I think it has to do with his epistemology. Like he's got a certain kind of epistemology about how we come to the know, how we come to know things. And I think his metaphysics, because he's consistent, I think his metaphysics rest rest uh, on that, which which is not a, a flaw. But I just think they're they're very deeply connected, right? And and his claim, and I think his I think he's I think his claim is is verifiable. His claim is that. Um, no, his epistemology is based on on this understanding of metaphysics. Mm-hmm. Of of the only way we can verify these categories of metaphysical concepts is through an understanding of human reason. In other words, logically, the mm-hmm. the way our, our brains um, work with these sort of concepts that we have before we experience them. He called that the factal faculty of reason. Um, and then the faculty of understanding is that with where we, we can kind of take our objects from experience and apply the rules that we know from our understanding or from our reason. Gosh, mm-hmm. I already got it backwards there um, <laughs> where we can take these, these rules that we know in reason because ultimately our brains are rules based um, entities. He was Prussian after all. Um, <laughs> um, but you know, our, our mind applies these rules that we know before experience. And, and the, the rules of reason are things that you don't have to experience. They're, they're, they're there in your brain just from, from the get-go. You apply those to what you understand um, in, from, from experience. So experience pulls something into our understanding. From our understanding, then we apply the rules. And with that rules, we can come to further understanding. We can grow our knowledge. Um, you know, but the experiences we have, those things that we actually know, knowledge, comes, as Hume would say, as any good empiricist would say, from the understanding. But in order to even have the possibility of understanding, you have to have these metaphysical concepts in your reason first. And so mm-hmm. it's that reason being applied to understanding that allows us to grow, allows our, our knowledge to expand, allows us to, to put together synthetic concepts. Um, you know, it allows our brains to operate. So, um, and you know, I think that makes a lot of sense to modern, um, modern man sensibilities because it, yeah. it really puts our brains on par and a lot, it, it makes our brains a lot more like computers than, um, say like St. Thomas's description of how things work. You know, Ever say, since I got the chip, I relate to that. More. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but it also, it's also led to a situation where I think in modern man, Kant has almost become the default metaphysical position that um, the, the metaphysical concepts that we understand, space, time, um, essences, existence, these are things that are part of the wiring of our brains. And with, with that wiring of our brains, we can basically exchange them out. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so since it's, since it's one, it's a, it's a, it's an operating language. We we've reconstructed computers in a lot of ways to sort of, uh, they're, they're somewhat patterned off of this, this model. Um, so 
if you can change an operating system in a computer, you can change an operating system in your brain, right? So the, these rules that govern how our brains work, they're changeable. And I think that mm-hmm. that's kind of one of the, the concepts that modern man brings to it. I think Kant would, would be aghast at the idea that somehow the metaphysical laws are changeable. As I said, he was Prussian <laughs> after all. Um, right. <laughs> nothing, no law is changeable in, in Kant's mind. So um, <laughs> He did seem to have a bit of a fixed mindset i would say that yes yeah yeah, yeah. And, and 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 honestly that's how he um that's how he grounds religion within his system mm-hmm. as well um I, you know i in some ways i think he's the original intelligent design theorist in a very literal sense um something had to design intelligence and if something had to design intelligence, therefore, you know, we can have access to a designer through recognizing the design of intelligence. Um, you know, his his understanding of where religion fits within empirical science, I think, falls back to that. Not that we can see that pattern of design necessarily in our experience, but we can recognize the rules-based governance of our own brains and through that understanding that our brain is based off of rules recognize that there had to be a rule giver that that Mm. sort of set that up it reminds me i don't know if that exactly matches what you just said reminds me i think kant might have us because he's not a theologian he's not really preoccupied with theological questions no no that's but but i think he would i think he would affirm that we would have access to like looking at a blueprint and by studying the blueprint, even if we never meet the architect, fully understand the architect, we know that there, that there is an architect. You know, I don't know. That's, that's a good question. That goes back to, um, that goes back to what we can know through experience, you know, where, where he puts, where he puts religion is this recognition within our brains that we have rules and that those rules, um, that govern our brains, and we can then sort of assume that there's rules that govern the universe. In other words, if our brains can create these rules that allow us to interpret experience, something had to make our brains compatible with the real world. Somehow there's got to be this compatibility between what we perceive. Something and explains our... Our, our, compat- our, our brains, right? Our, our brains have to have an explanation, okay. ultimately, <laughs> I think is, is sort of the, uh, the the way he gets to God. Which, yeah, I mean, from a theologian's perspective, that just seems incredibly weak, right? I mean, not weak as in doesn't make sense, but weak as in, okay, so we can know that God exists, but that's really about all we can know, Um and and what Kant, would, or at least where he stops, yeah, at least yeah. where he stops, yeah. And and what Kant would say is, no, our understanding can fill in a lot, obviously, but that's what we can know through pure reason is that there that God exists, and and where he says we really experience that is through the divine law within us, right? That we we have this concept of law and rule and order somehow built within our within our structure of our very being and so recognizing that moral order um within us we can recognize the the existence of sort of a divine divine ruler um but then also um that feeling of awe we get when we look at nature so when you as he says the, the starry skies above yeah his aesthetics are really interesting i think i think so too because they're based on his psychology and mm-hmm. i i think that i think that leads to an understanding of aesthetics that's 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 spot on but as i said you know i think it leads to certain 
metaphysical questions around the Eucharist that are that are worth bringing up and um, worth discussing in a modern context because you know Kant for better or for worse has become kind of the uh, the working man's metaphysics more or less um, you know I think when people ask themselves these metaphysical questions they quickly come to the conclusion, well, it's kind of because that's the way my brain's made. Um, you know, I think when they think through it, that's the default position. And, um, you know, that that's kind of where most people fall when they start to look at these metaphysical questions. And with that, we're going to take a break. We'll be back with more of the Catholic cave right after this. Hurting cars, trucks, homes, businesses, workshops, garages, man caves, and she sheds. We're with you wherever you go. Catholic Radio Indy. Whether things really are crazier than ever, or we just have more ways to hear about it all, it can be a little overwhelming at times. When that happens, remember the Apostle Paul's words from Holy Scripture. Do not worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Thank you for being a Catholic Radio Indie listener. Welcome back to the Catholic Cave. I'm Kent Blanford, along with Timothy O'Donnell and Mark Tuttle. And this is episode four of our series on metaphysics. If you've missed the first three episodes or want to listen to this episode again, you can find it at catholicradioindy.org. catholicradioindy.org. Click the drop down and find the podcasts. It'll be out there. You can go through the whole series and catch up to exactly where we are today. And where we are today is the discussion of Immanuel Kant and his contributions to metaphysics. Yes, and that discussion has brought us back to where we were at the beginning of this whole series on metaphysics, of discussing it. And the the central question, uh, metaphysically, that that we asked at the beginning is, is metaphysics relevant to today's world? Um, Mm. And and the sort of follow-up question to that then is, is metaphysics more or less at this point a religious concept in other words is it something oh, that relegated to religion re- relegated yeah. to religion is it something that we need simply to describe and explain the sacraments whereas in the real world we don't need metaphysics so w- the discussion of Kant has gotten us to the point where uh, for most people metaphysical concepts are those categories of thought those logical assumptions sort of logical positions we have to take to make sense of the world um, as we as we perceive it and as we see it in other words when we see a dog we know that there has to be something that all of that fur and all of what we perceive and all the color and all of that adheres around. We know there has to be some sort of essential being there, right? But we can't actually experience that. We have to sort of logically deduce that. It's something that we can know logically, something we can know in our heads. Um, And that there's a category that this canine fits into that has attributes that can be you know, attributed to all sorts of other things. So Barney the Wonder Dog isn't unique. There's other creatures that are right. like Barney the Wonder Dog that we call dogs. Right. Um, that also... That have, it, they share essential qualities or features. Right. That also is something that we know logically, but is not something that, that's there necessarily in experience of, of the world. This is sort of, I think, 
the way that people think. And that, that's, Kant's, that's Kant's metaphysics. That's, that's Kantian metaphysics. Um, and, and I think that's the default position that most people take to things. So where this becomes problematic is when you start talking about essences and existences that can't be perceived or can't be logically deduced. In other words, something like transubstantiation. Um, and and um, I think for most people, the idea of an essence of something that can change is either so straightforwardly, of course, of course essences can change. They change every day. This is part of everyday experience. Or it is something that is so far beyond what they can understand an essence being that the category or understanding of an essence is almost, it's not how our brains work. It's not how we look at the world. It's not how we understand things anymore. And so trying to describe the Eucharist as transubstantiation, it becomes religious terminology only. It doesn't really apply to the real world. And um, I think that's where this whole discussion on metaphysics sort of started from is, how do we Catholics sort of square with that? That that in some ways these metaphysical categories are are very difficult for people to use every day. We don't. Um, they're almost irrelevant outside of the context of the sacraments. Yeah, I think I think it depends. You, you might be onto something there. Uh, I I will find I'd certainly find agreement with you if what you're saying that the term transubstantiation resides in the religious sphere alone i would say that's probably i would say that's true because it really doesn't you really don't see it in action outside of the confection of the most holy eucharist right and i think you know i think that's that's different than saying metaphysics right and i think that's partly where we 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 come to the uh come to the, the the problem because um you know, when, when you're starting to talk about the essence of something, the, the identity, right, its core, it's, it, you know, the, the core of what it is, its core being, the, 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 the you know, um, modern man sees that as fungible and changeable. You know, we, we are able to take what a car is, for instance, and completely melt down the car, completely take all the material, completely reconstruct it into something new. And, and we have this experience of changing things, essentially, um, from one thing to the other on a daily basis. And so when we start talking about the changing essences and we're saying, well, that's what happens in the Eucharist, we mean something than the essential nature of something changing. We have to mean something different. Well, I would say in the example of the car, where if you take a car and you put it through some sort of substantial change, say through heat, um, and and form it into something else. You have a change of both both substance and accidents. In other words, it looks different. So it's easier to fo- it's easy to follow that kind of change with a car. What we're what we're contending with with the Most Holy Eucharist is that we have a substantial change without the accidents changing, and that's where the difficulty I think lot uh, lies. Here, here's something I heard actually from from uh, just yesterday in a talk I was listening to in the car with my wife uh, by Scott Hahn. One thing um, that he points out, and this is a theological claim, he said one of the one of the difficulties of people who um, are not Christians, but you may hear them um, you may hear them affirm 
uh, that uh, Jesus was a, a great man, he was a great teacher, and affirm him only in his human nature. Um, and we would say that that's incomplete because by faith, meaning our assent to the revealed truths by God, he's God and man. So I would say that's a similar proposition to the Most Holy Eucharist, where those who deny Christ's real presence in the Most Holy Eucharist see the physical appearances, the accidents, and conclude that it's merely bread, for example, um, where we have by faith, and faith not being not this blind, you know, sort of blind obedience, but rather in a, uh, the act of faith is an ascent of the will to the truths God has received. We know that He's really substantially present in the Most Holy Eucharist, and that was kind of a that was kind of a contrast that that uh, Scott Hahn was drawing, right? Which and, I thought was really helpful. And I think that's an, an important thing. You know, when we're talking about these metaphysical concepts breaking down, we're not talking about questioning the true presence of Christ within the Eucharist. You know, th- th- that's not at all you, you, what's at stake here. I, I think it is because if you if you have a misunderstanding or denial of substantial forms and matter or form and matter, sub- substance and accidents, potency, and uh, act, then you you are you are at risk of of falling into misbelief or unbelief. And and but that puts that puts metaphysical concepts back in the back into the realm to a certain extent of religious concepts. In other words, they are part of the faith. So the only reason and and the only reason you would have a belief in things like substance and accidents and those types of things is to is to describe the Eucharist. You know, we, we, we don't I wouldn't say it's only there. It's certainly to be found there. It's not exclusively there. But it, but it is exclusively there because we don't talk about any other aspect of reality in the same way. Not we today. We talk about people's potential all the time. Well, we talk, but but that's that that's an analogous form of the use of potential. We're not talking about their 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 essential nature being fully formed, like an acorn becoming a, a tree. When we talk about sure. a person's potential, no, sure. We're, sure we're, no, do. we're using that term analogously. No, I it, don't think so. No, no, I it, it's an analogous no because you're not you're not talking about accidental changes. Um, you're, you're talking well, when, when you talk about a person's potential, you're talking about what they're capable of doing. Um, well, that's one way, but another way is when we think about in the pro-life movement, we talk about from the moment of conception, everything is there sure. in, in potency. And that pertains not to like a potential, like a potential career. It has to do with human development. Right. But we don't talk about bi- biology in terms of potency, but biologists don't use the term potency. They don't. Um, they, they, they talk about development. They talk about growth. They talk about um, change, but they don't talk about potency. And there's a reason they don't. It, it's a, it's an old fashioned metaphysical term that doesn't fit the physics anymore. Um, and In what way I, I agree they may use different uh, they may be d- describing different things because they're different disciplines. But in what way does it not fit? You know, we we kind of ended the we kind of ended the discussion last week with with talking about um, atoms and and looking at the idea of atoms being matter that does not have a set form to it. In other words, there there's not a 
particular material that an atom belongs to. Um, atoms are completely interchangeable. They move from one thing, and there's no such thing as dog atoms. There's no such thing as people atoms. There's no such thing as chair atoms. And even when you break it down, there's no such thing as even hydrogen atoms because the, those atoms themselves can break down into um, you know, nucleus, protons, etc. So as, as you get physical, scientific descriptions of the material world, the, the, the distinction between form and matter breaks down. And, and I think that's really where those metaphysical concepts start to, to, to fall apart is, is when you get down to the level of, of physics that we've had, they, they no longer fit our science. Well, we're going to disagree on that. I don't see that at all, but uh, it's uh, we're not going to have time to solve it here today. So we may have to pick it up again, Mark, on another episode. <laughs> yeah, but I, I would I, say I don't think that's uh, I don't think that's really think the case to, at all. You, and I don't. You, you either have to have a strange interpretation of what Aristotle and Saint Thomas mean when they when they're talking about prime matter and they're talking about formless matter matter that that has no form has no existence right because that's their that's their statement there there is no existent formless matter so all matter that exists has to have some form to it otherwise it, it's just matter it, it's does, just but potential it's matter other, and prime matter are not the same things though right because prime matter is, is pure potentiality and right. pure potentiality has no existence that's where we're going to disagree. Of course it exists. No, no. Well, do angels, do, do angels, are they made of stuff? No, they're form. They're pure form, according to, to Scholastics. Well, they're of a, they, they have a spiritual substance, though, right? I mean, no, 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 no. There's they're something form. to them that are not formed no, they, by. They're, they're immaterial, by definition. Right. Immaterial, no matter. Right. That's what immaterial means. Yet, There's no matter. Right. The, the, right. So, so they are pure form, but the idea of matter being in some way completely unformed, that there, there is matter that has no form. That's prime that's, matter. That, but that prime matter does not have existence. And that, that's, then what would it be? Well, that's kind of the question you got to ask Aristotle and St. Thomas. Well, my, my, point, but, <laughs> my point about angels, my point about angels is that you can have things that exist that are not made of matter. Correct, correct. Okay, so prime matter would be my example of that. No, okay, if, if prime matter is pure form, then, it, then that's it's a contradiction. It's not pure form. It exists. No, the, you denied its existence. And I say prime matter does exist. As, and it doesn't have to have a form to exist. I would say prime matter only exists as an idea, and therefore it is only a, a form. So the prime matter, the, the idea of prime matter has no matter and therefore has no material existence. I agree. It has no physical existence. Right. But and it does exist, but not physically, but like that, an angel. But the matter. <laughs> <laughs> so now we've fallen into Dunce Godus, right? How no. many angels are dancing no. on the head of a pin? No. It, it, okay, we'll I, pick it up again. I think you've, uh, you've, you've violated the first law of metaphysics, which no. is the law of non-contradiction. No. I'm, so. ta- I'm talking Aquinas and Phaser here. Okay, and that officially calls for episode five. And we're going to do that the next time on The Catholic Cave. Thank you for listening to The Catholic Cave on Catholic Radio Indy. I'm Kent Blanford for Mark Tuttle, for Timothy O'Donnell. Be holy. The Catholic Cave is a production of Catholic Radio Indy. Replays of this program are available in podcast form at catholicradioindy.org. 
Comments about this program can be addressed to Kent at catholicradioindy.org or by calling 317-870-8400. Did you miss something in this show or just want to hear it again? Podcasts of this and all our other great local programs are available 24-7 at catholicradioindy.org.